1: and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam.
0: Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. Tom Castelli joined here with Bill Smith and Steve Schlussler of ELB Consulting, a company that provides cost irrigation studies, RD tax credits, 179D, and 45L Energy Tax Certifications, and other fully engineered solutions to improve a commercial property's ROI. In today's episode, we discuss the new tax law changes to qualified improvement property that can save commercial investors thousands in taxes the Section 179D deduction, 45L Energy Task Credit, and much more. Before we dive right into today's episode, we do want to let you know about the new Tax Smart Real Estate Investor community on Facebook. It's the one-stop shop for real estate investors to learn about tax strategies and stay up to date on changing tax laws. With nearly 400 members and counting, there are a ton of conversations taking place right now. Join today by visiting www.facebook.com/groups/taxsmartinvestors or by searching for Tax Smart Real Estate Investors on Facebook to make sure you're not missing out on major opportunities for tax savings. The link will be in the show notes below. We look forward to seeing you there. But for right now, let's jump right into today's episode. Bill, Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a bit of information on your background and your work? I'm
2: I'm Steve Schuster. I kind of have a tax background. I've got a uh, master's in tax. I've been doing uh, really kind of focusing on real estate and in particular cost segregation. Started doing it around 2002, early 2000s. 2000. So I've I've uh, been at it quite a while and been involved in literally thousands and thousands of studies and different uh, different variations of uh, of real estate and cost segregation.
3: Nice. So uh, my name is Bill Smith. I'm also with ELB Consulting. Been with ELB since 2013. So going on seven plus. I don't know whatever they count is at this point. And so kind of focused on cost seg for all those years. Prior to that, I was in the real estate finance industry for many, many years, scared to say how long and dealt with a lot of, you know, more residential type solutions and services. So, you know, brought my expertise here and I kind of helped run the business development, lead our team, coach our team and work as a subject matter expert. And and when I can't answer the questions, then we go to Steve.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. No, that that makes a lot of sense. You know, and you know our listeners here on the show—they love cost irrigation. They love hundred percent bonus depreciation. And I'm sure we're going to touch on some of that here today. Um, one of the interesting things, though, that came out in the CARES Act, or or that was in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but was later clarified in the CARES Act, and we'll get to that, is qualified improvement property. So, perhaps Steve, uh, would you be able to give us a, a brief overview of what qualified improvement qua- uh, property or QIP
2: is? Uh, sure. Actually, from a uh, particularly from a cost segregation perspective, we, uh, we get involved in QIP quite often. Uh, and probably as most of your listeners know, when it originally was uh, put out at the beginning of the year, it lacked the 15 year qualification. So, it remained. As 39-year property, so although we were still qualifying it as QIP, it remained a 39-year property, and we continued to do that with the hopes and with the, you know, kind of the understanding that it may go to 15-year at some point, which it did as part of the CARES Act. Uh, so the CARES Act moved the qualified improvement property or corrected it from the 39-year class to a 15-year depreciable class. So it did. I did look at the life. It also. Uh, you know, they had the standard QIP. You know, non-expand building expansion has to be interior only. Couldn't uh, involve elevators. So it really is for your for your business purposes or for any kind of upgrade to your business use. And uh, as part of these studies, we uh, we dive in and go ahead and identify all the QIP.
3: And I think one of the other things it, it did. I want to touch on in the old QIP before it was corrected is it was like there's three categories. There was restaurants and retails and just. Qualified improvement like for offices and buildings. And so in the CARES Act, they consolidated that into just being qualified improvement property because there was always nuances for restaurants and different businesses. And I know most of your listeners are real estate investors for you know multifamily and homes, but it did help that. So that was a big improvement. And it also, again, as Steve said, it focuses on the interior components. So even if someone on an existing property, so you can't like build out a brand new shopping center build something new and then Put it as you know. Somebody comes in and spends a million bucks building out this shell space. It's never been used before. You can't utilize it, so it has to be in previously occupied space, and things that were like thirty-nine years. Steve said, HVAC would be thirty-nine years. So the outdoor compressor would qualify thirty-nine year, but all the ductwork and things inside, all the would normally also be thirty-nine year, can then go to fifteen year, and because of what you mentioned before, bonus depreciation. Voila. You know that what would have normally been straight line property can can qualify because it's less than twenty years old. So,
2: got yeah, so, Billy, so I, you know what I, I think you touched on one thing that that's important uh, for the uh, for the clients to remember is it has to be property that has been previously placed in service. So it's got to be existing use property. You can't put a new building and then build out a tenant space and expect that to qualify because it won't.
0: Got it. So so basically, qualified improvement property for everybody's listening. To kind of sum it up, it's. It's improvements to the interior interior of an existing commercial space, so retail office, et cetera, that's already placed in the service. So, for example, if I owned, I don't know, I'm just going to make something up, a grocery store, and I were to make an improvement to that grocery store's interior, that would be qualified improvement property?
3: Yes. Correct. A lot of times people uh-huh. repurpose, grocery store moves out and in goes like a play zone or something like that, or they kind of repurpose it. And so, you know, those definitely...
0: Qualify. So let's just say that I'm a commercial real estate investor and I go out and I buy a retail strip and I did a cost segregation study on that retail strip. That wouldn't be QIP. That would just be broken down into your standard class lives as any other property. That's correct. Correct.
3: But then if a tenant moved out and you did build out in one of those spaces, then that would be qualified improvement property.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Do you get a lot of people coming to you to try to go back and amend their past returns to get this QIP? Or are they just coming to you now in 2020 and focusing on just 2020? Or is there a combination of both?
3: I have an answer for that. And it's not necessarily plays well into our business. But I've got a client that redid a shopping center down in you know Sand Hills, down near Pinehurst and stuff. They put a new tenant and they did a bunch of build out like $600,000 worth of build-out or a couple of, I forget, it was, it was pretty big. And he goes, hey, can we do a cost-tech study on that? And I said, well, actually, you don't have to. Because I know you've done inside, you know, I i, I basically bought it back. We could have done it. Now, if they need all the asset detail for other things, but essentially with QIP, while 100% bonus is still in place, which come January 23rd, it may not be in place anymore. But if it's while it's still in place, then, All those improvements are essentially 15-year, and they can write the whole thing off. Again, it depends on their tax strategy. They want the details of the property. So some have said yes. And I've done some studies for clients where we've identified the QIP in the 15-year property so they know what that is Then the normal 15-year property. So we do break that out on our studies when we do a full, fully engineered study for folks. So you almost sometimes circumstantially may not need it. Which eliminates our need for a cost-take study, but then people say, hey, we like you, and when we need one, we're going to call you back because you didn't sell something we didn't need.
0: Got it. Got it. So do you know if it's possible to, at this point, can you amend the tax return and go back to January 18 to capture QIP, or is it is it at this point just 2020 going forward uh, as a result of the CARES Act?
2: It, it did extend it back to the beginning of 2018, so if you, if you did want to capture that, you could amend and go back and capture that those dollars.
0: Got it. I got one more question on QIP for you. One more question. So we know short-term rentals that have an average stay of seven days or less are not considered rental properties for certain parts of the tax code. But I guess my question is and we kind of get this from clients a lot, is like if you were to say say I buy a house, I buy the house next door and I rent it out as a short term Airbnb property, is that considered non residential property at that point, or is it considered residential property still?
3: I've got an answer for that and Steve can clarify. So, we've gone through and on our DIY, which you guys are part of, if it is a short term rental, then you have transient tax, then it qualifies like a hotel. So, it's going to have a 39 year depreciation. So, it really just changes the depreciation from 27 and a half to 39 years. So, that's really the biggest difference. And so, that's how we process those when we do Airbnbs. I did one recently on a million two or three. House in LA, beautiful, you know, we're looking and, you know, we got like 50 some percent on it because it had so much outdoor stuff. It was really good with a lot of 15 year, but it qualifies 39 year category versus, you know, your traditional multifamily 50 unit, 100 unit, 12 unit, you know, this 27 and a half or single family residential.
0: Yeah. So it would still be classified as a residential property. So in other words, like if I were to have this Airbnb and I were to go and place into service, I have a few renters in there and I decide to go ahead and redo the entire interior of my Airbnb property. And then I guess is, is that qualifies QIP because it's 39 year property or would it just still be residential just over 39 years?
3: That's a tricky question because not residential. So if you change a QIP. Then can you use QIP on a on a house that's not residential? Because certainly, I see what you're getting
2: at. What do you think on that, Steve? That's a that's a good question. Yeah, you know, uh, really, and I think it kind of emphasizes the point that when we do get uh, properties like this, or we get clients that have properties like this, we work individually with them. I mean, I you know, we make sure that they're on board with the way that we're treating it, or if they're treating it a certain way, we make sure that we can conform our study to that way of treatment. And I think to your question, probably you could qualify it if you're changing the use. And if you're considering a 39-year, you probably could use QIP on that, would be my opinion on the surface.
0: Yeah, that's where we are kind of on it. Uh, We we are working on some research to kind of get some more clarity on that. But I think it's one of those issues that is, it's just one of those, it's one of those sticky issues, one of those gray areas. Um, We're hoping to get like a pinpoint, like, you know, this is buy the code, buy the book, this is a hundred percent the way it is rather than have that judgment call. But yeah, i just figured maybe, maybe you came across it before, but it's just a gray area. Yeah.
3: I agree. Well, that's something
0: that we'll look up and we'll get
3: back to you. That's sure. we'll be because you want to be clear because you want to, if it ever goes into audit, or there's ever a question, exactly. you got to be able to defend it. You know, and cost segregation mm-hmm. is an art, not a science, because you do these things and you got to be able to defend them to the irs and so that's where you go so people have some different interpretations on different property styles but as long as you can back it up and that's what we do we can back it up with the auto techniques guide and the tax code to defend
0: our. hundred percent and and for anybody out there who's listening to this uh if we were to recommend that position that your short-term rental is indeed a non-residential property and that those type of improvements can be considered qip uh, we would absolutely have some kind of citations or something along those lines before we made those recommendations and also let you know about the risks, if there were any, of taking that type of position. Uh, we don't want anybody to, to get themselves into an audit where they can't defend their position. That's one of our number one things that we do. So thank you so much for that discussion there. So we have section 179D. It's another tax deduction for uh, commercial properties. Wondering if you'd just be able to give us a high-level overview of what Section 170D is. Okay, so 179D, to be different than 179,
3: came out as part of the 2005 Energy Policy Act. And there's a lot of things in there, but one of the things was to incent green energy building. And so for the 179D is for commercial buildings, and it's a tax deduction. And so a commercial building, newly built building, or some upgrades and retrofits can qualify for up to $1.80 per square foot. And that $1.80 is comprised of 60 cents for lighting, 60 cents for the HVAC and hot water systems, and 60 cents for the envelope. So the envelope has to qualify. It's gotta be the ASHRAE standards by collectively, all three by 50%. So a lot of projects will get just lighting or lighting and HVAC or maybe envelope and HVAC. You can get several ones, but it's again four commercial properties. It's a deduction like a cost segregation, like a depreciation deduction. So it qualifies as a deduction. And if you retrofit lighting in a big warehouse or something and put a new LED from the big high bay type things, then you can qualify for just the 60 cents, which we do a lot of those. We do with with new hotel builds, things like that. So we, we do a lot of, of 179D. And I've done some on apartments multifamily
2: that are four stories and above. So you know is- and I, and i might just emphasize bill to your point that it, that it is comprised of three different areas the lighting the hvac the envelope but you can qualify for each one of those independently so if the lighting qualifies you can get the 60 cents a square foot you know if you have two to qualify you get the dollar 20 you know so it's just kind of it's incremental up to the full amount of dollar 80 per square foot
3: and the other thing thomas we can do a look back is my boss i did something five years ago i never thought about it With the 179D, we can go back to 2006 when it went into effect, which is kind of odd, but it lets you go back. And the other one you're going to ask us about, we can go back into open tax years. So that's a great thing. So it's a great opportunity for, for, and it's not limited to commercial or residential. It's both. And some properties, when you ask the next one, qualify for both. And I'll explain that I think when we get to the next question.
0: So for section 179D, just for our listeners to understand a little bit better. So it basically it's for either residential or commercial properties. It could be either, or how would I know if it's something I should be taking a look at? Like, is there a certain size of property I should have? Is there a certain building type or a certain date? I, I purchased the property. I know 2006, you go all the way back, but it, how do I know this is something I should be looking into if I'm an investor?
3: Well, we kind of go thirty thousand square feet kind of the minimum. Like just for lighting, you've got to have because there's a so to to qualify this. I mean, it's more almost more work than than cost aggregation or maybe it is more work. We have to model the entire building. We have to look at exposure. Is it west facing sun? I mean, that could kill it. I mean, some some rooms might qualify in a residential like in apartments where other ones wouldn't. So we have to look at all those. Model the building. There's so many factors in that, and you can go back as long as you're in excess of of 30,000 square feet and you've built it, or you've gone and you've repurposed the building and put a new HVAC and hot water systems and lighting. Now lighting, it's not just screwing in LED light bulbs that you picked up at Home Depot and all the center things. I mean, you've got to have lighting controls. Like when you walk through buildings and things light up or you've got rheostats, things where you can control the lighting. So to qualify lighting, there's lighting, lighting and lighting controls, an HVAC and hot water system have to be certain, you know, SEER ratings and that also, whatever the hot water rating is, windows or, low LE and things and then you know R42 insulation walls and roofs and doors and things like that. So we look at all those aspects to qualify. So plus 30,000 square feet and um you know new build or retrofit. Yeah
0: and, and, and this just for everybody listening this could be pretty sizable because from my understanding is you can get a maximum deduction of a dollar eighty. So $1.80 per square foot that could be pretty sizable. Absolutely. Then we have a, a another another credit, another good tax credit out there, 45L. And would you just be able to give us a little bit, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure this one's more towards the residential side, if I understand correctly. So yeah. would you just kind of be able to give a high level overview of what 45L is? Yeah, so 45L came out with
3: 179D collectively, and it focuses on residential property, three floors or less above grade. So a you know apartment tower, 20 stories or four floors, would qualify for the 179D, but a garden style or three floors or less qualifies for the 45L. But the beauty of the 45L is it's a tax credit, not a deduction. It's $2,000 per qualified unit. So if someone has a 300-unit apartment complex that they built, so if you acquire one, you I mean, you've got to do major work to qualify it. So this is really for new construction on those. But if you qualify that you might get the the models, you know, you've got to be occupied, but you might see, you know, up to $600,000 tax credit, not a deduction. I just recently worked with a client. They got 400 and some units, $800,000 tax credit. And one of the complexes had three-story buildings and four-story buildings. So on that particular complex, we did the 179D for the ones four floors and then the 45L for the ones that were three floors. So they got a huge, got eight hundred thousand plus dollar tax credit. So they were very happy with that. So, so, but that's how and it also works for single family homes like Pulte and these big builders that do energy efficient homes. And that it, it it works for that. So condos, townhomes, single family, and apartments. Apartments is a sweet spot. You know, some of your clients are developing stuff that really is good. So, and you have to qualify for all three. You can't just qualify for one. You've got to get H V A C and hot water, lighting and the uh, um, envelope to qualify, and those are even more tenuous, where maybe some units won't qualify, like corner units that are facing west with the sun or things like that. Uh, I had one client in Arizona a number of years back. They had this great premium luxury apartment complex, but they put in aluminum windows. Boom. It killed it. Everything else was qualified, but instead of getting some kind of vinyl window that's a heat transfer, it killed it. So. You know, so, so there's things that we have to look at to evaluate, is it going to be energy efficient?
0: You got it, got it. So basically, you know, it's kind of summarizes a little bit. The 45L tax credit, a tax credit for everybody's listening, actually reduces your tax dollar for dollar while a deduction just reduces your income and then you get taxed on your reduced income. So tax credit is generally going to be better and, and, and benefits you more. But the 45L tax credit, is for is basically for homes with that are three three stories or less, and you have to meet certain energy efficient criteria in order to qualify for the credit. And and for that reason, you're normally seeing this on new construction, not necessarily on existing buildings. Is that what I? Yeah, you can't you can't do it with an acquisition, or we'd be doing them like
3: crazy. But if you take an acquisition, you repurpose a building. People like buy these you know, tobacco warehouses and then convert them to apartments. Those are hard because they want to keep these brick walls exposed. But if you do something, you can convert it or you can get lighting. You can do some things on those as the 179D. But the two, yeah, mostly for new builds or a significant expense on repurpose to meet all those standards.
0: Gotcha. Say someone out here, someone, one of the listeners wants to explore the section uh, 179D tax deduction or the 45L tax credit further, at what point in the process should they be engaging or getting a conversation going with a cost segregation firm like ELB Consulting?
3: So two things, not all cost segregation firms do it. You've got to be specialty engineers to do it and qualify. You've got to use specialty modeling software that the IRS approves. They've got, you used to have six, I think it's 10 or 12, and you've got to model it and you've got to get it approved. And so there's some some circumstances there, but you know, when they request a cost segregation study, we'll evaluate it, but we need full plans and specs. So to get, so with an acquisition, you don't get that. So we need the plans and specs because we've got to analyze those completely to understand. So- they just need to do it before you know time runs out and they qualify because um, the unfortunate news is, which you're probably going to bring up, is both of these expire on 12 2020 So in a month and a half, they're done. They'll be renewed. They've expired before and they've been renewed. And usually they renew past the expiration date and they retroactively put it back. Like this time it renewed, I think, in... Uh, 19, and they retroactively did it to 18, so it's 18, 19, and 20, so we've been doing a lot of work, and clients wait for that, and so nothing's going to happen now, and (laughs) um, and politically now, but it is a green thing, so probably next fall or something, it'll be approved, or in 2022, and they'll make 2021 qualify.
0: Does that mean that when you say it expires, if I've, I'm just a listener out here and I'm, I, I want to use this, does that mean I have to contact a firm like yours before the end of this year to take advantage of the credit, or can I still use the credit, or can I execute this next year, and, but it only would apply to 2020 and, and previous years?
3: That's a great question. only applies to 2020 taxes and previous years, and we can do it next year, just like cost segregation. You don't have to have it done by 1231. You just have to have it done by the time you file taxes. So if you're filing taxes in September or October next year, we just have to have it done by then. So you might think, you know, realize next year, hey, we did this building. We never thought about this. We should go back and do this. So yes, no, you can look back. And for the 45L, you can look back into open tax years. So a listener might say, we built this complex with, you know, 47 units in it or 150 units in it. In eighteen, I never did this in eighteen sell an open tax year depending on when they filed so they can we can go back and grab that from eighteen where the once i d we can go back you know to when it started. but just for the forty five l tax credit, it's open tax years
0: got it, got it it makes a lot of sense i I do have one one more question It is related to cost segregation, <laughs> and we've discussed this before. And I don't think there's necessarily one right answer, but just kind of want to provide some guidelines for people out there, you know, with the partial asset dispositions uh, we know that, you know, if you have a cost segregation study and you're going to do a major renovation on a building um, you could identify the price of say a roof, for example, and then you go ahead and you replace the roof. And then because you have the existing roof or or the previous roof, you're able to deduct that all in that year um, that you dispose of that roof. So, my question is, you know, generally speaking, uh, when does it make sense for someone to, to engage a cost irrigation study firm, if they're Does it just makes sense for them to do it before they start renovations or after? And if there's a difference or if, they, if it's subjective answer, is there a threshold in which they should do one or the other?
3: I'll give you a quick example of something and I'll have Steve fill in the blanks on the tax code, but I've got a client in Texas who bought an apartment complex you know, couple million, put a million into it. And we did it after the fact. And sometimes we do it before the fact, it just depends on the project. We'll counsel them. But we saw their demolition plan. So we did the cost segregation study. They bought it, let's say, in 18, and the improvements were in 19. So we bought it in 18. So we have to cost segregation, you know, do the cost costation on the acquisition for that tax year of 18. We'll go back and model that building identify everything. And even if they've done the work. And then in 19, they did a million dollars the improvements. And we went ahead and then do the improvements because that's a different tax year for 19. And then we can take the disposition abandonment we identified in the 19 tax year. So when you go in service and you complete that project, you can do that. So then they'll take that, which is an expense, which expenses are better than depreciation in most cases. You can expense it like 179 versus under d right? You want to expense it. So that's kind of a scenario I've done a number of times, but we will identify disposition and abandonment for clients. And sometimes they'll get us in there first to identify everything if it's a big enough project and then they'll do the work and we'll come back
2: later and identify those. I um, mean, Steve. There's probably some tax guidance in there. You might want to fill the blanks. You know, I I think actually you summed it up pretty well. And it really kind of also depends on the size of the project and the extent of the remodeling or the you know the uh, refreshing that's going on. You know, if it's fairly extensive, uh, what you describe is exactly the way we like to do it. We've also worked with clients and actually, you know, done like a two-phase study where we'll come in initially with the purchase and and document exactly what's there and put values on all of the. You know, different components of the building. And then after the uh, refresh or the remodel, we come in and we do a uh, just another quick cost segregation on exactly what's there at the time. So it allows the client, number one, to retire any uh, assets that's been disposed of or taken out of service. And it also gives you a very good solid report of everything that is owned or in the facility uh, in service at the time. And so it really kind of is a is a twofold study. I have another great example
3: that might actually help that too. We have, and Stephen helped me on this. I've got a client that's acquiring like a 20-some story office building. Mm -hmm. It's a historic office building, right? So historic tax credits, again, historic tax credits, go with those first. Cost segregation is secondary to that, right? Because, again, it's a credit, right? It's a chit with the IRS dollar for dollar. But they're going to have us go in and do an asset management study. So it's like cost segregation, but we're not gonna qualify five-year life and stuff like that. We're gonna qualify everything is 39-year life. So then they're gonna take a couple of years and they're gonna do a $30 million renovation. And most of that's gonna be historic tax credit. But what's not, we can cost seg on. But then because we've gone in up front and identified everything, when they tear all that out, they're gonna have a huge, probably. Five or ten million dollars are a lot of money for disposition abandonment. So again, that one's one where we came in first. You know, that's the size and scale of the project and also the circumstance because it's historic. So, you know, it depends, as Steve said, you know, and we talk to folks, what makes sense?
0: Yeah. So there is no right or wrong answer, but would it make sense to say this for say, say you're a normal multifamily investor, maybe one to four units, most of your properties are under a million dollars it would make sense to do the cost segregation study after you do the renovations. It's not that large of a project where you have to go in and do it beforehand. That's correct. Got it, got it. And mm-hmm. one last question that came to mind. So a lot of our clients do use the DIY studies for the lower price properties because it, do, it does make it a cost segregation study so much more economical. On some of these properties, a traditional study would be very, uh, would be cost prohibitive and just probably wouldn't make sense. So if a listener is using the DIY study they will generally add the renovations to the basis of their property for the purposes of that DIY study.
3: As long as they're in the same year, that's correct. So if they bought a property for 200,000 and did $60,000 renovations all in 2020, we just say 260,000 and qualified as a duplex or triplex or whatever it might be. Yes. We do that. And I've worked with some of your clients on that. So yes. And, and also because you don't have asset detail, you, you can't really do the disposition for the new roof. You have to like qualify what the roof costs. So if they do a new roof, DIY doesn't give you that detail to break out the specific cost of that roof that asset detail works. So some people that are under a million dollars, I'll talk to them and say, what are your plans? I mean, is DIY right for you? There's plenty of properties under a million dollars where a full study makes sense. And, you know, doctor's offices are great examples, but where are, the, what are we going to do with the roof? We're going do all these things. It's like, well, just the disposition and abandonment expense Would justify the cost of the study. So, you know, I work with folks to say what's best for your needs, your taxes, what are your goals, what do you do with the property, and what makes sense for your tax needs? We want to maximize our tax benefit. And again, I get the cost benefit ratio. So, okay, here we're going to get this, but potentially you could have a $40,000 expense. Is that worth it for the extra, you know, four grand maybe in, in expense?
0: No, it makes sense. It makes sense. Like a lot of things in accounting and taxes, it, <laughs> it it depends. It depends. And sometimes, you know, we have a lot of people who come to us, whether they be prospects or clients who want some guidelines or some, you know, bright line tests, I guess you could say. And it's it's just not always it's not always so bright line. So good to hear about that. So if our listeners wanted to learn more about ELB, what you guys have going on, maybe you want to cost segregation study or want to explore one of these tax credits or or deductions we spoke about today what would be the best way for them to learn more about you?
3: Well, to contact us, of course. And Steve's email is steve at elbcostseg.com. So we make it really difficult. So Steve at (laughs) elbcostseg.com. And (laughs) And so so they reach out to there. We've got our phone numbers, I believe. Um, We're both on LinkedIn. Our website, you know, um, elbcostseg.com. We've got an inquiry page on there. And I usually see those and, and distribute those to our team accordingly. So yeah, that's how you would reach us on, on those questions. And then, you know, we like to be tax, not like CPAs, but advisors. We get a lot of questions that are like CPA questions, like, you know, go ask Thomas. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's a little you know, something, you know, because everybody's circumstance is different. So it's like, what's your circumstance? What are your tax needs? But we will identify what's the best option for you, whether it's cost seg or band disposition or these energy tax credits so you qualify and then and we'll we'll do the assessment like any other cost segregation firm will we'll do a free feasibility analysis and you look at it and you say does this make sense
0: absolutely it is definitely a two-way street there's certain things that you guys are much more equipped to answer than we are and there's certainly things that fall under our our umbrella as a cpa that we're, we're more i guess more qualified to answer i guess the word would be and, uh, we've worked with Bill and, and Steve on, on a number of our clients. And, uh, we'll go ahead and drop that stuff into the show notes below for everybody who is listening and I want to thank you both for taking time to come on the show again. It was a great episode. All
3: right. Thanks thank you for your time. i hope we you helped your, uh, your listeners. Absolutely.
1: Thanks for listening to today's show.